I'm your host, Ray Yogum, and welcome to Vibecast. Vibecast is ViBio's weekly podcast where we explore some of the hottest topics in drug development, investment strategies, and technology innovation. Our guest today is Dr. Travis Stiles, founder of Novaron Bioscience, where his work on the LRP1 receptor has opened up the door to the discovery of an entirely new class of drugs. Travis, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself and your background to the community here? Sure. So um, Travis Stiles, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Novaron Bioscience. Uh, the company's founded off of my thesis work, where uh, that I got my where I got my PhD at the University of California, San Diego, uh, in biomedical science. Um, that work was largely based around kind of mechanisms underlying regenerative failure of the central nervous system. Um, you know, I, I was actually a trained physiologist before that. My bachelor's and master's were both in uh, human physiology, uh, so the pivot to kind of neuroscience was uh, was an interesting one in my in my PhD. Excellent, awesome. And uh, tell us a bit more about like your research and thesis. I'm actually curious, like what did you try to prove? What was sort of your um, your goal there? You know, I, it's interesting because, and I'll try to keep this short. I actually went to UCSD thinking that I was going to work in uh, muscle physiology. Uh, there was a gentleman, Mike Hogan, that I really admired a lot of the work he was doing. And uh, I had had a friend pass away from uh, ALS and there, I had a lot of interest in um, the mechanisms of like muscle atrophy and sparing muscle mass because there's a lot of diseases where that muscle atrophy is a, like a really strong prognosticator of like long-term outcomes. Um, but the nice thing about the biomedical science program at UCSD is you, your first year, they don't let you pick a lab. They make you rotate and that you have to do four rotations or three rotations. And you also have to go through all these different mini symposia where you basically get exposure to all the different research that they have to offer at, in that program. And it's a big program. Um, and, uh, I actually had no intention of getting into neuro, but I remember when we were in the neuro arm of the presentations, um, I had an uncle who had been paralyzed since I was born. Um, and so I'd always had a lot of familiarity with the concept, but I just thought once you broke your, like once you damaged the spinal cord nerves, they just couldn't grow back. And I remember Ben Zhang was presenting in that section uh, and he was, it was the first time I'd heard that, no, if you, if you actually take nerves out of the environment of the central nervous system and put them into a different environment, they grow fine. And vice versa, if you take nerves from the peripheral nervous system that would normally grow and you put them into the central nervous system, they don't. Um, and I just was fascinated by this, the fact that like, oh, there's factors that are blocking regeneration. It's not just that they can't regenerate. Um, and then later on in that same section, there was a talk on multiple sclerosis and a, a brilliant lady, uh, Katerina Kosoglu, uh, was talking about why, you know, the failed remyelination that takes place in MS and like the fact that remyelination can take place, but in MS, the 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 debris that persists at that lesion site is actually just inhibitory and it kind of suppresses that regeneration. And the Venn diagram of what molecules actually directly contributed to this was actually pretty strong overlap. And I just remember thinking, wow, that'd be really cool if you could really like dive in and figure out how that's working because you might be able to fix both problems. But I didn't think much of it. I, I wasn't a neuroscientist. But fast forward like five months later, and we were actually in the oncology rounds. And uh, there was a the chair of pathology at the time was presenting on inflammation and cancer and LRP1 was one of the things he was talking about. But he had this one slide that he kind of was a throwaway slide at the end where they had just published a paper where LRP1 was a novel receptor for myelin debris. And it perked my interest because myelin debris is one of the largest sources of molecules that actually blunt regeneration of central nervous system nerves in, in, in myelination. And so I remember I raised my hand and I was like, hey, have you looked at this in the context of regenerative failure of the CNS? And he was like, nope, 
and we don't really have any intention to. Uh, and I remember asking him after class if I could rotate in his lab to just look at this and he had no interest. It was a hard no. I actually had to get the support of both of those previous professors that I had mentioned. They actually had to march me to his office and persuade him personally to let me come on as a graduate student, as a rotation student, just for three months, just to see if there was something to it because they both agreed that it was worth looking into. Um, they both ended up serving on my thesis committee, but I was very fortunate to be one of the few graduate students who my rotation actually served as the foundation for the rest of my life. Because all we really did in those initial studies is once I learned how to grow, you know, isolate nerves and grow them and plate them in certain ways and purify myelin. And um, we basically did the two simple experiments of either genetic silencing or antagonism growing nerves on, on inhibitory substrate and watching them grow like crazy. And uh, that was, uh, that, so from the very beginning, we kind of knew that we had something. Wow. That's an incredible story. And thanks for persevering through that, even though, um, you know, that person didn't necessarily think that it was, you know, what you wanted to do was very interesting, uh, but you did. So, and I'm glad you did. It sounds like there was a lot of discoveries uh, downstream of that. So that's fantastic. What motivated you to found Novaron Bioscience? You know, I, it's funny cause I actually had no interest in forming Novaron. I, um, like towards the end of my grad studies, like, so my boss was a very successful, you know, uh, uh, pathologist and, you know, cancer researcher. And, but with the success of my, initially my rotation project, and then we built a little team around it. So we had a project scientist and a couple other people, you know, we had a lot of success. We, the, the, like we ended up having kind of the project scientist, Alban Galtier, who I still work closely with to this day. He kind of took on the remyelination arm of what we were looking at. Cause the remyelination and the axon regeneration were two kind of two sides of the same coin. And I really focused on the axon regeneration and spinal cord part. Um, but, you know, I think kind of being victims of our own su success, like Alban was able to transition, like translate that his role and his publications into a faculty position at the brain immunology and glia center at the university of Virginia. Um, one of the, one of the really useful uh, people work helping us drew, she, she went to med school and then we had a project scientist or a, a, a lab tech that went to grad school. And so like towards the end, there was just me left. And, you know, Steve, Steve Gonius was my, was my advisor to his credit. He came to me and said, you know, like when you're gone, like I really, I'm still not a neuroscientist. There's really not room for me to carry this project. So I just wanted to let you know, if you wanted to keep working on it, once you leave, you have my blessing, which was very nice of him. Like, that's not a normal thing for PIs to do. Usually it's like, they want to keep things in house. Um, but the problem is, is like, as somebody who didn't even have their PhD yet, there wasn't a lot of, a lot of options to do that. Like when you're interviewing for postdocs, People don't like you hearing, oh, do I have the project for you? You should hire me to do what I want to do. They they want to hire you to do what they want you to do. And I was too junior to be writing like PI or faculty level grants. And so really the formation of Noberon came out of just sheer necessity, like to keep the program alive, the project alive. Like the- and That was in 2014, being, right? That was quite a while back. We started, the first grant we ever submitted was the end of 2012, actually. Like it was that long. So- uh, but yes, the, when the, when we, the, not the first submission, but the second submission of that grant, when it got funded, it kicked off and started in 2014. And that was really, do you remember how much that program. grant was for? So another fun story. So the, the grant was supposed to be two years and $700,000, but, and I will refrain from having any political commentary here, but if you'll recall, that was around the same time the sequestration was, was a problem. And so we kind of got notified really early on that uh, the two, the 702 years was going to get cut to one year and 250. Uh, keep in mind that none of the deliverables or the goals of the grant were going to be changed. Just the budget was going to be cut by two thirds in the time and a half. 
So we kind of out of the gate were working pretty much walking a very thin tightrope with both hands tied behind our back. Um, and so it was a pretty, it was a very tough situation to be in right out of the gate. Um, the 700,000 would have been great. We were able luckily to get just enough data to eventually submit for another version of the same grant, um, just not too long after. Um, but fortunately in the meantime, cause that wasn't enough to keep the company going by any stretch. Uh, I actually had to take a postdoc, so I was working Noberon and the postdoc at the same time just to keep the lights on, but we were able to get a remyelination MS grant in parallel. So that really kept us alive uh, in about 2015. Um, and then we were able to get a second spinal cord grant in 2016. And that one was fully funded at the 700,000. So what's the problem that Noberon is trying to solve? So initially, you know, it was really this, why don't nerves regenerate? Why don't, why doesn't myelin repair itself? you know, after injury, it was very much, we were a spinal cord injury and remyelination company focused solely on targeting the LRP1 receptor. But one of the things that um, I kind of noticed very early on is that LRP1 is a massive receptor. Like it's, so it's just the binding part alone. And actually here, I'll just share with you a picture. This is the family of low density lipoprotein receptors. So, and as you'll see, this is LRP1 here with the little red star. Now, just this extracellular part where all the good stuff happens, all the binding happens is like 515 kilodaltons. And for people who don't really know protein speak, that's like five times bigger than any other kind of drug target like protein out there. And it has these four, so these little clusters of light blue dots, that's where things bind. And so as, but you'll see that there's lots of clusters of blue dots and there's lots of other members of this family that have their own clusters of blue dots. And so people often look at these like they're too similar. Like it's just a bunch of blue dots. They're all the, the every blue dot had this similar structure. They were all identified as complement like repeats. So people long thought that these were just kind of like very ubiquitous scavenger sticky type of ligand binding domains and that that weren't going to be amenable to drug targeting. They also thought that the binding was very binary. Like if something bound in there, if like, for example, this little chunk here, which is this fourth complex, fourth cluster of complement like repeats. If something bound there, nothing else could. And I was seeing very early on that that was probably not true, that you could get either dual ligation of very discrete domains in here, or that in under certain circumstances, something might block binding and under, under different conditions, it wouldn't. So for a long time, I thought that the field was really underestimating this whole family of receptors as potential drug targets, because I thought that you could target in a more specific way. And the reason that this is important to notice is like, here's just a list that we've compiled of different diseases that in the scientific literature have been validated as like, if you could make a drug against this target, you could maybe do something for this disease. And so you can see there's a lot of them and it's not just LRP1. I think LRP1 is probably the most important, but there's very important diseases, unmet needs even in across diseases, that if you were able to develop more precision drugs against these receptors, you might be able to affect these diseases. And so really what we pivoted into kind of building off the success of our spinal cord and uh, remyelination programs is we've kind of built into a light, low density lipoprotein receptor. So this family of receptors here, drug development company, where we can actually break down, down to the individual single blue dot where we think disease relevant interactions are taking place and then use that information to develop more precision drugs that can target that domain and that domain only and then leave the other really important biological functions that all of these receptors do uh, intact. Very interesting. So what types of treatments or drugs have been uh, you know, in your pipeline? Have there been any clinical studies done on these drugs? 
so everything, so everything we're doing right now is preclinical. The program that's the most is the furthest along, which it would, it, it makes sense. It's the one we've been working on the longest is spinal cord injury. Um, and spinal cord injury, we're really excited. We think that we could have an IND for that in 2025 and, and, and start human trials. Um, now in terms of like this, okay, but that, that, that treatment paradigm is very unique. It's a different type of drug. That drug is a, is just an antagonist of LRP1. It shuts down all the function. But because our treatment paradigm is we only treat for weeks after injury and then we're done, it's not as big of a problem because the chronic consequences of shutting that receptor down aren't as big of a deal because we'll eventually let it turn back on again. But if for something like an Alzheimer's disease or kidney disease, where you're really treating somebody for the rest of your life, their lives, you really need something that's more surgical. And really what became the catalyst to really pursue this program was this paper that came out in 20, uh, 2020 that's, that, that discovered that LRP1, so the receptor we've been working on primarily since the beginning of the company, um, was the master regulator for tau spread. The reason that's cool is Alzheimer's has two main components, amyloidopathy and tauopathy. And Alzheimer's isn't the only disease that has this tau component. Can you explain it, what, what but you it's mean obviously, by that as well? What do you mean by tauopathy? So tau, so the in in both amyloid with in, in reference to both amyloid protein and tau tau proteins, the they're both considered proteinopathies in the sense that there at some point becomes a dysregulation of either production or clearance or function, and you start to see this like toxic accumulation of aggregated protein in and outside of the cells. Um, amyloid has been the major focus for Alzheimer's for years. Um, but tau has gained a lot of traction because there's many, there's a lot of evidence that indicates that it perhaps precedes the amyloid phenotype and that it has kind of a more direct effect on, on the neurons. Um, but both, both have both, you know, both have value. And there was just recently an approval of two antibodies for amyloid that seemed to have at least some, some effect. But the reason that this was exciting is because m almost all the drugs that we've been looking at for Alzheimer's to now that look at tau or amyloid are really looking at late stage phenomenon when the protein's already misfolded and aggregated and building up in a mess outside of cells. And, and one of the ways that I think is useful to describe the difference between the amyloid and the tau pathology here is um, amyloid, like the amyloid component of Alzheimer's is really like, imagine a neighborhood where the garbage men go on strike. And what happens? Garbage builds up in the street and it builds up and it builds up and it builds up. And if you don't get the garbage men back, eventually the streets are overloaded and you can't drive on it anymore. The solution to that problem is very simple. You got to get garbage men back to clean the streets. Tau's different. Tau seems to be a little bit different in the sense that instead of it being like a garbage strike, it's more like a hoarder moved into the neighborhood. And that hoarder has so much trash that builds up in their house and in their yard, eventually it overflows and starts spilling over into the neighbor's fence. And eventually that fills up and spills over into the, in the neighbor's fence. In, in the way that that happens is neurons, instead of spitting it out outside of the cells, they'll actually, from one neuron to the next, when they get too much of this tau buildup, pass it along to their neighboring neurons much, much earlier than they will spill it out into the extracellular space. So for that, there is no garbage men that can come and solve the problem because garbage men don't go into your house. For that, what you really need is taller fences so that the garbage doesn't spill over into your yard. And that's the tau spread kind of mechanism that we think that we can, that we thought we could target. The fact that LRP1 is the main regulator of that spillover from one neuron to the next, if we're able to shut that down, this neuron will never get sick. 
it will just quarantine that that phenotype into this neuron. And that's exciting because that's a really early disease phenotype, you know, where you can intervene earlier than a lot of these other approaches. And it's it's kind of a newer mechanism that people are just now starting to really appreciate how kind of a, a pivotal it is. So it was a great opportunity for us. Okay, LRP1 is the master regulator of this. What if we can block that surgically precisely without interfering with other LRP1 functions? Um, in a way that we could treat for a lifetime. And so this is just an example. We, 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 we built a, uh, an entire platform around this where we can screen to identify potential very, very small binding domains. And then we use this uh, a binding and cellular uptake assay to validate those domains down to a 40 amino acid sequence. And this is just showing that once we identified that a single amino acid mutation, where changing that single amino acid blocked almost completely blocked any of that tau uptake into cells, but it left other normal canonical and important interactions intact. And we use this wrap interaction because it's a very strong interaction that's kind of canonical in the space as our, our kind of proof of concept to show that that wasn't interfered with. And so that the our tauopathy program kind of is is really important because it's an it's a it's an important disease. I think that we have an opportunity to be one of the first people that can specifically and mechanistically target tau spread as a mechanism to in, to intervene in tauopathies like Alzheimer's or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the tr the the repeated head trauma kind of condition. But also, it serves as a really good proof of concept that we can do what we say we can do, which is precision drug discovery for this entire family of receptors. What is the route of administration for this drug? So to be honest with you, like if you if you look back at, you know, here, there, depending on, you know, depending on what the disease is, the, the clinical paradigm might change. So for spinal cord injury, we're doing intrathecal delivery. Be, you know, every patient that gets a spinal cord injury needs to have surgery to stabilize the injury. So you have an opportunity during that surgery to just insert a catheter and deliver drugs straight to the injury itself, which minimizes the peripheral exposure, which minimizes the risk of adverse events and the off-target effects. So it's a very specific and unique case study where intrathecal delivery is actually the, the preferred approach. For MS, where it's the same kind of lead compound or at least the same kind of parent uh, uh, compound uh, uh, backbone, uh, that wouldn't work because you can't control where lesions in the brain or the spinal cord perform. Form so that would be better served as a intravenous delivery. So for the tauopathy program, it's probably going to be something similar, where you would either look at something like subcutaneous, intravenous, or even transcutaneous, like a patch, if you could get a good small molecule. But you know, I think the other part of that question is what's the modality? Like, it, depending on the disease, as long as you can specifically fit in the pocket that we think is of interest, it could be an antibody, it could be a small molecule, it could be a protein, it could be a peptide, it could even be an aptamer. Um, our platform really is agnostic to modality, and we can, which allows us to to choose a modality based on what makes the most sense clinically for the specific indication of interest. Very interesting. Thanks for sharing that and the science behind you know the company and what you're working on. So I want to shift gears a little bit. I know you said earlier that your your first grant was you applied for was for seven hundred thousand, but ended up becoming a two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollar grant. And so obviously funding is never certain. So I want to ask you what stage of funding is your company at right now? So we've been um, we've been very fortunate. We've raised two seed rounds. Um, the first one was really around just the spinal cord and MS programs. But it was literally right in the same time that like three papers in a row came out around this tau phenomenon. 
So our investors, uh, Two Bear Capital, who have been amazing, were very interested. Hey, can we do a Tau program? Because who wouldn't? Like, oh, you guys work on LRP1 and LRP1 just came out and was validated by three different labs as being this new fancy therapeutic target. Can you do this? And, you know, my answer to them was like, we can, but not for the $3 million that we raised in our first seed round. So obviously you don't want to jump off the cliff and just say, great, let's do more money for this. So what we did was, is they were great. We, we worked together to say, what is a reasonable preliminary proof of concept to do that would, sh- that would demonstrate to you that, to, that we can do what we said we could do, which is identify a precise spining domain, which was different than our spinal cord approach. Our spinal cord approach was, a, was napalm. It blocked the whole receptor. So we actually came up with a work plan and we generated metrics milestones that we all agreed would, would trigger an investment. And then as we were working scientifically towards those milestones, we were able to negotiate the terms and the, and the, and the deal structure and the dollar amount in real time. So when the data finally came through, we weren't wasting time haggling then we could just pull the trigger and we came up right against the edge. Like we got, we, we, we basically kind of got the data package that that we were hoping for probably two weeks before we said the kind of time. And here's the thing. If the time would have ran out, I'm sure we would have all just agreed that like, we'll, we'll see if it's moving in the right direction, we'll see. But, you know, as we had only raised money to do one thing, every dime that we were spending on this was money that was being reallocated and not being used for its original purpose. So we really didn't, we kind of wanted to give ourselves a time limit so that we kind of had to go no go so that we weren't burning too much capital on what could have been a distraction. So the fact that we did it in the timeline that we had planned was was a really good thing because it allowed us to make a really decisive decision at the right time. Um, and that, because because this is a much bigger issue and, and also because it's earlier stage and has a much bigger implications, it was a much bigger raise. So we ended up, we ended up raising about nine and a half in that round to really catalyze both the platform and the Tau program itself. Um, and so we, we kind of, it was terrible timing. We, we were hoping to actually make it 12, but it was right as everything had kind of gone, gone bad in the market. So, uh, we ended up stopping at the nine and a half, but, uh, um, you know, we've, we've been trying to find more creative ways to kind of fill the rest in the two and a half, just for, just to give us that comfort to, for, through our kind of milestones. Uh, but yeah, that's, we're, you know, I, we're, we're in a pretty good spot right now with, just, even if we didn't raise the, the, the additional two and a half. Yeah. And one thing that, um, you know, I heard. From what you said, that's really important is how your investors helped you focus on exactly what you needed to do, what experiment needed to be done in order to prove out, um, essentially overcome or navigate your inflection point. And I think that's really important for all biotechs, especially since there are so many things you could do, so many experiments that could be conducted, you know, scientifically very interesting, however, might not prove exactly um, what you need to prove in order to get to the next level of drug development, at least in this environment. You know what I mean? Oh, 100%. Yeah. And it was great working with people that cared about the the end goal because like we went back and forth quite a bit. And because we were all on the same page, we, we weren't trying to like have our special metric. We didn't want to like have our we, we really wanted to feel good about, oh, it's working. And so we did go back and forth and, and kind of had multiple iterations. But the feedback was always towards like, I think that's a good point, but I think this is a more powerful. It means more. It has a higher likelihood of translatability. Um, and so like, well, I think the final product was, wasn't just the, in the best for everybody feeling good about the investment. I think it actually ended up being in the best interest of actually advancing the program itself. Yeah. And it's great that you had investors who, uh, you know, were aware of the science, understood everything that needed to be done and, you know, could help you that way. Um, yeah. what kind of partnerships are you currently seeking in order to help excel what you're working on? Man. So one of the downsides of, the, of this pivot to kind of like a more platform-esque company is 
the potential, the, the, the spectrum of potential outcomes or opportunities is much broader, right? So you kind of have to be selective about what you choose to do and what you choose not to do. So for example, we're very good at the protein engineering, the protein chemistry and, and those types of things. So as I'd mentioned before, different diseases have are probably have better arguments for different modalities. We're very good at proteins and peptides and basically large molecule type things. But for the tau program, it really seems to be a better fit for a smaller molecule, like either like a small molecule itself, or maybe an aptamer or a nanobody, maybe potentially. Um, and it doesn't make sense for us to try to expand our core development capabilities into becoming a small molecule medicinal chemistry company. So we've been looking at multiple different kind of partnerships, one of which that I'm really excited about is with Monash University in um, Melbourne, Australia, to be kind of our contract small molecule drug development arm to so that we can focus on what we do best, which is the precision discovery and proof of concept, and then rely on them based on the, the unique proprietary reagents that we can generate to do some of the small molecule development, whether it be fragment-based drug discovery or structure-based drug design, or even high throughput screening, which we obviously, that's another part that we're kind of good at, but we don't have our own proprietary small molecule library to use to screen to start with, right? So that's one. Uh, we're also talking to, and I'm very excited about uh, potentially working with a group at the City of Hope on some Aptimer stuff. I really like the Aptimer approach because while it is a viable drug development approach itself, it's also uh, can be a really great way to get to a molecular proof of concept. Even if it's not a clinical candidate, it can get you to uh, proof of concept that targeting what you say you want to target can work even in preclinical models. Um, we're currently talking with um, a, 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 a gentleman, James St. John at Griffith University in Gold Coast, Australia, Queensland, uh, to, to try to take advantage of some opportunities um, with some non-dilutive funding and some programmatic funds that they have there uh, to look at collaborating on some uh, combinatorial therapies, as well as some of our doing some additional studies on our drug itself in in their uh, uh, like spinal cord center for excellence. Um, and we've got an existing collaboration with uh, the, lab, the Ken Kosick lab at, the, at UC Santa Barbara, who is one of the godfathers in the Tau space. And one of his former postdocs, uh, Jenny Rausch at UM Amherst, who's been an amazing collaborator on us for animal models for Tau spread. So those are kind of like the existing kind of like business development in terms of like strategic partnerships. You know, the two things that we're really looking at right now is we're doing a lot of customer discovery on this in the Tau space, because really as much as we're, we have a vision and we have a path in terms of what we, where we want to get to, to get the, to get our lead molecule for the, to, for the, our Tauopathy indication, um, we're really, this is a new area for us. So we're really trying to find people that might be interested in um, this space and at enough level where we might be able to partner, you know, with smaller upfront stakes earlier so that we're really be, being the most efficient in toward trying to get this to the clinic. Um, the, you know, the nice thing about the Tau space is there's, there is preclinical interest. And so we really are trying to identify the people so that we can really leverage each other's, you know, core expertise towards making this happen as quickly as possible. Um, and then on the spinal cord front, because we're thinking we're going to get this into the clinic in 2025, you know, we're always looking for people that would be interested in kind of catalyzing that. Um, we, we truly, if there's one thing I'm the most excited about for Novron, it's that I really think our spinal cord therapy has a real shot at helping people, right? Like in, 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 in the next few years. And so, 
you know, the, the prospect of getting into clinical trials that gets expensive and complicated. And so partnering on that is going to be really, really critical. You know, I want to ask you, there's so many different companies now trying to develop technologies uh, for connecting basically a computer to your brain, uh, things like Neuralink and things like that in order to help people with potentially spinal cord injuries or brain injuries. Uh, what do you think of those solutions? Are we still very early or do you think this is going to accelerate? and start getting into people pretty soon. So uh, I'll be honest, like I've got several, like I've got kind of my personal opinions and my scientific opinions. One, like I struggle with smart cars. Okay. <laughs> like, like I struggle with the idea that somebody can hack my thermostat. Um, I really struggle with the idea of brain implants. I feel like you are opening up a Pandora's box similar to AI where we really don't know what the potential fallout is of that. That being said, there does seem to be promise in helping people. And I'm, I, I never want to say I'm going to be cynical about uh, technology that in the best use case can really help people. And I do think that there has been some indications of, of promise that those things can happen. On a kind of a less advanced kind of level, epidural stimulation in, 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 of, of, in spinal cord patients, is, I think, is already has a abundant amount of evidence that it can really kind of like take people's baseline function and take it up multiple notches. And even though it's not as elegant as like a computer machine, like a machine interface or whatnot, um, that's a, that's a, a different type of approach to, uh, you know, a, a functional improvement that I think is non-canonical and more device oriented that I think is in the very nearest term. Um, if we could ever kind of get our ducks in a row to do a more, uh, you know, get the clinical trials done and get mainstream approval and, you know, to get payers on board uh, could really take off any time. I mean, I, I, I honestly, I don't know many people that, that don't believe that if we could just get the trials done, that that would be an immediate benefit to spinal cord patients. Um, but I really struggle with the, I really struggle with this idea of brain, of brain computer interfaces. Um, if we're going to do that stuff, I think it has to be self-contained and, um, oh, what's the word that people use when it's firewalled? Um, uh, and there's not really any Bluetooth or Wi-Fi capabilities of being able to interfere. Like a, like a cold wallet essentially is something where no one connects it from the internet or any sort of other. Um... Yeah. There's a, there's a word that they use where it's like a black, black wall or something like that. I can't remember, but, um, you know, firewalled. Yeah. Firewall works um, like though. I think that that's going to be really critical because in this day and age, you really only need one example of the worst case scenario to stigmatize an entire approach. That's true. And like it worries me if we're setting ourselves up to be susceptible to that worst case scenario before we ever get to really explore the full therapeutic potential. Um, but yeah, I think it's very you know, careful with that for sure. Yeah. And so I, I, I would just say, you know, I would never want to stop something that has therapeutic potential, but I do think that there needs to be an abundance of caution beyond anything we've ever had to think of in the past in order to make sure that we do that in a way that doesn't have setbacks that could be extremely detrimental to the patients we're hoping to help. Sounds like you're very cautiously optimistic in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the other thing I'll say is that with our approach in spinal cord injury in particular, you know, there, I actually think that one of the other potential benefits of our, like, if we're like, 
there, there's a lot of excitement out there around like stem cell graphs, like an MPC graphs. And I actually think one of the things that, you know, as an ancillary, you know, maybe a parallel or maybe down the line thing that I'd like to try is I think there'd be a tremendous amount of synergy between our approach and that approach, because in theory, like our drug just really helps the neurons and the, and the glial and glia in the space to re-navigate and re-expand into the tissue so that they can make new connections again. Having, if, if we, all we did was have that exact same effect on new cells introduced to the space, it would only enhance their ability to engraft and infiltrate and create new connections. And so that, you know, uh, I, I think similarly, just the effects that we have on kind of the inflammatory environment and things like that, some of these technologies might actually be synergistic with our approach in terms of being able to promote healthier tissue responses to the intervention that we hope to introduce. Yeah, some sort of integration or something. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, my final question before we just you know, have any final takeaways here. Since Novaron didn't raise money from VCs until 2021 and you were founded in 2014, so that was about, you know, a six, seven year wait. Uh, do you have any advice for early stage founders in biotech? Maybe, you know, why you did that? Do you advise that approach or is there a specific reason that you and your company uh, went that way? So I get, I get asked this question quite a lot when I speak to like student groups. And people will say, what advice do you have for people that want to do what you did? And my, I have an easy answer to that. Do not do it. Don't. It's If there's any other way to, to do what you want to do with your life, do that. This approach. What do you specifically mean? Do not do what? Just so like. Do not think that starting your own company and being a CEO and championing that by yourself or with a small group of whoever is, is going to be glorious or glamorous or it won't ever be boring. It'll be exciting. But it will be humbling. It will be not lucrative for at least a very long time. And it will be a toll on your personal life that you do not have any concept of at this stage. Now, that being said, do I have any regrets about what I did? Absolutely not. Because I wasn't, and, and this is, if, if somebody is in this boat, I wasn't willing to live with the what if of abandoning the potential of what I'd been working on and always having to wonder what could have happened if I had pushed it forward. Leaving something on the table, let it die on the vine that could have helped people that I didn't advance. If that's where you are and forming a company is the best way to make sure that you get that 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 comp proof of concept or that level of, assur of assuredness for yourself, then absolutely do it because that's gonna be what allows you to stick through the hard times and to, if necessary, stick it out for seven years of getting by on, on, on grants and taking almost no salary before you can get to the place where you can actually raise real capital. Um, in that sense, I will say, even though I do joke, somewhat joke, it's, it's, it's half serious, half joking about like how, you know, trying to warn people about how hard it can be. Uh, the other side of that is I've never once had to wake up and wonder why I'm getting out of bed. Like there's something very fulfilling and validating about that, about knowing every day your purpose. Um, and that, it might, I'm not going to tell you that it like every day makes it worth it, uh, but it certainly staves off that, you know, existential crisis that never really happens. You, you really, you just go cause you have no other choice. And that is a clarity that I think actually has a lot of benefit. So um, now all that being said, let's say, let's say that it's easier. Let's say, let's say you've got blockchain precision medicine, whatever, like the hottest, sexiest new thing. In that sense, my advice would be make sure you surround yourself by really good people that are willing to tell you no, that are willing to tell you when you're stupid, that are that question their own opinions and are willing to do, to to 
do the validation when they don't have the perfect answer. The worst thing in the world that you can have doing this job, because if you are married to it, if you are committed to it, if this is what you're going to just drive yourself into the ground for, you need people that are going to be able to have the know-how and the willpower to tell you when you're being stupid or wrong so that you don't drive yourself into the ground unnecessarily. I think, you know, you have to be a bit delusional. You have to be arrogant to do what I do. Otherwise, like it's you, there's, it takes a special kind of, of arrogance to wake up and be like, yeah, I, I can cure paralysis. I can make people walk again. You know, there's, that's not a normal way to look at the world. Um, but you have to have a balance of being able to also say it's not worth being wrong. So I have to consider when, then when that might happen and you have to have people that are willing to tell you. Um, I think being a CEO, one of the things that I've seen happen to companies that I think had a lot of potential that fell short is CEOs that are successful raising money too early oftentimes have an overinflated sense of rightness and they stop listening or they hire people that validate their opinions and they there gets to be a point where the CEO is no longer the innovator. They're the business developer. And if you, as the business developer, aren't willing to listen to other smart people so that you continue to innovate, you'll fail. Dr. Travis Stiles, everybody, thank you so much. This is, this is a great conversation. Really appreciate it. I hope you all enjoy it as well. If you did like what you heard today, please like and share and subscribe. We're on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Again, thank you so much for your time and look forward to uh, sharing this with the world. Thanks. No, thank you. I, I enjoyed it.